Hi, I'm Elise Dayoub, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Anna Louise Sussman, a Class of 2022 National Fellow. Anna is a freelance journalist based in New York. A former staff reporter at Reuters and the Wall Street Journal, she now writes about gender, economics, and reproduction for publications including The New Yorker and The New York Times. She's currently at work on a book, Inconceivable, Reproduction in an Age of Uncertainty, about the barriers people face in starting or growing their families. So Anna, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. So to start, can you tell me a little bit more about your fellowship project and what you're hoping to do with it this year? Sure. Um, The project is a look at the different um, barriers and challenges that people face when they're trying to start a family or maybe grow their family. Um, Some of these barriers are material, uh, it could be something like medical infertility or their financial, um, and others, you know, might be more sort of psychological um, or emotional. So it's looking at a range of those and bringing them all together so that we can consider them holistically instead of singling them out one by one. It's a fascinating topic and certainly very timely for different reasons. And, and I'll draw on some of that in a bit. But I'm curious about what drew you to this project to begin with. And to start reporting on this, I think you've published quite a few long-form articles over the past few years on this topic. So curious about your gravitation towards this topic. Um, this started as a, a personal issue. Um, I became interested in what are now called assisted reproductive technologies um, when I froze my eggs when I was 34 years old, which is about five years ago. You know, I also, I had had a breakup the previous year, and then in subsequent years as I, I tried dating again, I also... Um, became very interested in why dating felt really difficult. Um, I, you know, in conversations with friends, I learned they felt the same way. Um, it, it often felt really annoying <laughs> and unromantic. You know, what the relationships were between, you know, my resorting to um, a new technology like egg freezing, um, you know, my, my personal life, my work life and the conditions of work. You know, there was one year I remember going on more work trips, then I went on dates, um, which felt like a, a really skewed, really imbalanced life in some ways. Um, and all these questions uh, led me to learn more about um, different academic fields like medical anthropology, de- demographics, um, the sociology of reproduction. And, um, you know, I came to these topics with a background uh, reporting on gender and human rights for more than a decade at that point. And I'd also been uh, reporting on economics um, for several years. Yeah. So earlier this year, the U.S. Census reports showed that Americans' birth rate has been declining. And it's certainly become a very hot topic. And a lot of think pieces have been published, uh, you know, uh, just this year alone on this topic. And so in your research so far, what have you found are some of the reasons people are choosing to have fewer children, no children at all, or just children later in life? And I, I always say that there are as many answers to this question as there are people making the decision. So I know that's not a very helpful answer. I, you know, I'd say it, it, it comes down in, in most cases to a mix of factors. Um, so it might have to do with work, uh, whether that's, you know, the, the wages you're paid or that the wages fluctuate um, or the demanding hours or unpredictable scheduling. It might uh, be a question of, of whether or not you have uh, been lucky or unlucky in, in your personal life. 
Um, it might be education, and that can take the form of being in school for a long time, which probably delay having children, or student loan debt, um, you know, housing costs. It might be related to environmental issues, or you know, more likely it's it's some combination of those things, which is why I think it's also important to look at them all together, um, as as I hope to do in this book. You know, I think in the case that um, where people, you know, are, are are choosing not to have children because they genuinely don't want to. Um, you know, this idea of choice that you mentioned, it, it, this is something that's relatively new in human history that um, there exists reliable contraception, not that everyone can access it as easily as they should be able to, but, you know, where people can, that is is relatively new. Um, you know, and also changing social attitudes where women can um, and do and should be able to create lives for themselves that don't revolve um, exclusively around maternity, which has been the expectation, I think, for so many centuries, um, that's what women should do. So that's that's plainly something to be celebrated and encouraged um, for those people who do not want to have children, and, and especially for women. You know, on the other hand, when when we say why are people choosing to do this, I think using the word choice implies a measure of freedom that kind of obscures the fact that in a lot of these choices, there are a lot more constraints at work than we than we see. So you know, someone needs fertility treatment and that costs like an average of $22,000 now in the U.S. for, for a round of IVF. Um, you know, if they don't have that money or they don't have the insurance coverage that will help them pay for it, um, you know, that that's less of a choice um, and just a, an, an unrealized wish. Um, and then quite a profound one. You know, I think there's this question of its procreation special, you know, that something unique uh, versus like there's a lot of, I think, <clears throat> wishes that people have that, that aren't fulfilled and aren't met, um, you know, but I think this is one we, it's worth paying a little more attention to than, say, you know, wanting to have a gigantic yacht, but unfortunately not being able to have, have the yacht. Yeah. And so in some of your previous work, you've mentioned this phrase social infertility and that it actually is a barrier for individuals who or couples who are deciding to have children. So can you explain that phrase in a bit more detail and just how that plays out into the decision-making process? Absolutely. I mean, you know, medical infertility has uh, a definition, like a globally agreed upon uh, definition. That's usually when um, a heterosexual couple, so that's a couple with different gametes, so that's eggs and sperm, um, try for 12 months to get pregnant and they don't succeed. Or if they're older, it's, it's a period of six months. Um, social infertility is when you don't, when you want to get pregnant, but for reasons that might be termed social. So like if you're in a, a same-sex partnership or you're not in any partnership, you're single, um, you know, in that case, you couldn't reproduce no matter how long you tried. Um, so the medical definition is is really inapplicable. Um, the reason this is a problem is because uh, getting insurance coverage for fertility care usually requires um, an infertility diagnosis. So people who don't meet that medical definition have a much harder time getting this care. Um, there are some states, uh, New York State, I believe Maryland, um, have passed legislation that, that tries to address this. And, and I, I saw that Illinois had proposed similar legislation as well. But you know, I think where it gets really interesting is kind of points us to this deeper question, which is, you know, do we all have the right to procreate? Whether is that unlimited rounds of IVF paid for by the government, like which is more or less what they have in Israel. You know, if if we do have this right, and and to be clear, this is not something that people agree on, then determining access to fertility care based on this medical diagnosis inherently excludes 
large swaths of the population. But, you know, if we say that, okay, everyone does have this right, what does that mean, for example, for, um, you know, couples where both both, both partners are, are male and they will require, um, you know, who are, are biologically male, if they require eggs and a gestational car- carrier, you know, those are much more demanding and intensive procedures um, on the carrier's body or on the donor's body than and a sperm donation. So do they, do they have a right to these bodies and these body parts? Um, and who's going to pay for all of this? You know, if, if doing this in the commercial sphere costs, you know, upwards of $100,000, um, you know, to, to create a pregnancy this way, who's responsible for that? How do we ensure access? You know, should we ensure access? And I think these are really, really tricky questions, but also really interesting ones, too. No, for sure. In terms of how um, individuals are making decisions based on, you know, what they can afford and the process there. So there is a lot in terms of conversations with regard to climate change and pollution and how those issues are now playing an active role in terms of barriers to starting families. And so I'm curious about your book. And when you think about these environmental issues, how you're approaching this question about the future of the world and how decisions are being made now with regard to reproduction. Yeah, the, this is a really important and fascinating question. I think it becomes more and more salient every day um, when we read about climate disasters and seeing all these things unfolding in the news on a basically daily basis. Um, and there are two sides to this. One is the kind of psychological effect of, of living in this um, incredibly destabilizing and pretty scary period um, in which the, the planet is becoming really observably more inhospitable to life. Um, you know, some people have decided that it doesn't then make sense for them to have children because the world will be so awful for them or they or they base this decision on, you know, the carbon footprint of procreation is that, you know, another person means more consumption. And then the other, and I think this is more frequently overlooked, and I'm glad you brought it up, is this, this issue, you know, about how changes that we have made as humans um, to the environment actually materially affect people's bodies and specifically their ability to reproduce. Um, so there are many, many ways in which this happens, um, unfortunately, through embarrassment, you know, <laughs> options. And what I'm what I'm actually working on now is trying to figure out the right location and community and, and person through whom to tell this story and to narrate these issues. But just to give an example of this, the different um, possibilities that I'm looking at, you know, you have broader things I think are, are harder to tell in a narrative fashion, such as, you know, rising temperatures which negatively affect sperm counts, um, you know, warmer and wetter environments that, that um, facilitate you know, mosquitoes and spread uh, mosquito-borne diseases like Zika, uh, malaria, um, you know, drought and wildfire that affect crops. And then you have nutritional deficits that affect fertility and also affect infant health. Um, A big one that's gotten a lot of attention recently is endocrine disrupting chemicals in in, in different household products, plastics, um, flame retardants. Um, You know, these are thought to interfere with the development and the function of our reproductive organs. Um, air pollution has been linked with adverse birth outcomes. Um, and of course, you know, the lead in the water in, in Flint, Michigan um, was associated with highly elevated rates of miscarriage. So, you know, unfortunately, there are so many 
ways in which this works. And the, the challenge now is finding the right person through whom to tell the story. Um, so I have a lot of feelers out this, you know, this week I was actually reaching out to a lot of activist groups, lawyers, researchers, and, and others for their kind of guidance on, on where to situate the supporting. So as part of your research for the book, you are looking to answer some questions along these lines in different countries. I think Denmark and South Korea were mentioned in your application. And so I'm curious about what you're finding with your research when it comes to these conversations on an international scale, but also what are some of the cultural differences that you're starting to see as individuals and couples make these decisions regarding their decision to have kids or not? You know, my my uh, best friend is Norwegian. Um, so for a long time, I've had this kind of front row seat to some of the different ways that people parent and raise kids in in different international contexts. And um, she's a few years older than me, she has three kids. And, you know, the level of ease that I see there, um, and also among uh, friends who are parents in Denmark, really stands in in such sharp contrast to to the kind of relentless stress that I observe in, in my American friends who are parents. Yeah, I mean, things that American parents panic over, like, you know, finding a, a quality daycare at a manageable cost when in many states, daycare costs more, you know, on an annual basis than college. I mean, you know, these are things that Scandinavian parents take for granted. And Denmark's an interesting case because in that country, there's been a rise in the share of children born with reproductive technologies. It's about one in 10 now. So that includes um, both single mothers who, who come in to become parents with via sperm donation, and as well as couples um, who are just having trouble uh, getting pregnant. And um, they also have a declining birth rate. So politicians and you know medical professionals are, are really worried about this um, because when you have a lower birth rate in a socialist, social, you know, social democracy, um, taxes are really the thing that make everything run. You know, in, in Norway, I think their finance minister has been quoted saying that daycare has been a bigger boon for their economy than um, their their sovereign wealth fund, their oil fund, because they have many highly educated women. And when those women can put their children in safe, quality, affordable daycare, um, it's affordable, you know, very low cost or free for, for, for most families. You know, they stay in the workforce, they earn good salaries, and then they pay, you know, tax rates of 40% or more. Um, so that really keeps the system running. Um, you know, with fewer workers, fewer children, um, and less tax revenue, this really jeopardizes the whole system. But I think that's a difficult argument to make for young people to say, you know, our pension system is running low. Can you please, please stop what you're doing and become a parent? Young people or people of reproductive age today um, you know, they're enjoying what is, as of now, a very good system for them. They they can spend a long time in school um, and they receive uh, student stipends while they're studying. You know, they may have the chance to work overseas and, and explore the world a little because most um, most Danish people will, will learn some English during the course of their education. Um, you know, or there may be other factors at play that we, we see globally, you know, such as the issue of, of finding a partner, which can be difficult, you know, regardless of what sort of taxation and, and redistribution scheme you live under. Um, you know, South Korea, I'm still waiting to visit because they have a, a mandatory quarantine period um, and, and rules in effect. So I don't want to talk too much about it before I've had the chance to, to visit and, and do some reporting. But 
For my research and my early discussions with, with scholars, sociologists, economists, uh, anthropologists who, who study Korea, you know, there are a few factors at play. One is, is what you might call um, workism. Um, I think that is a phrase coined by the Atlantic writer Derek Thompson, you know, which is when people find meaning and, and value and identity largely through their jobs. Um, another are some quite disturbing signs of, um, you know, kind of degeneration in relations between women and men. So there was a lot of reporting about a college course that was designed to teach young people how to date and not to fear the opposite sex. Um, so that, I think that's a, <laughs> kind of a red flag. Um, and there's also been a huge divergence in marriage and fertility patterns based on education. So for those with the most education, um, marriage and, and the family still seems to be within reach. For those with the least education, the rates are even in pretty sharp decline, I think. That speaks to you know level of inequality that that is pretty pronounced um, and is much less prevalent than in Denmark, um, and which appears to, to to structure social relationships in a meaningful way. So one thing we pride ourselves on as Americans is our individualism, and so in your research, I'm curious to hear your perspective on how, if at all, that has impacted our attitudes around parenthood, and if there is an impact. I'm curious if you also see that pattern in other countries as well. I, I always find it surprising that um, people take pride in individualism. I mean, I, I can see where it comes from. And if you're brought up in a, a culture that, that values it, then it's it's natural to absorb those values. But to me, uh, you know, really pronounced individualism is, um, it signifies a, a huge blind spot about the reality of the ways in which our lives are are deeply interconnected, you know, which COVID is but the, one of the most obvious examples of, of how that works. And it really always surprises me when it comes to parenting, how little people expect um, in terms of help. Um, they expect very little from the government. They can count on maybe a little help from like their, their own parents or in-laws, or maybe a brother and sister or sister. But, you know, people really take this burden because sometimes it, it can be a burden and the joy you know they, they kind of privatize it um you know that this should this should I should be able to do all of this myself this is my child you know but I personally I you know if I am able to become a parent I would love help from the government um I'd love help from my mom of course and from all my friends and I I, I kind of hope that they would feel the same way um you know, and I think this is this becomes clear also, you know, we talked about taxes earlier. I mean, people really loathe paying taxes. Um, and part of that is because we, a lot of what we get for our tax money is not um, particularly visible. Um, whereas by contrast, a lot of the basics of life, the things that we come face to face with and have to pay for every day, like housing, healthcare, um, education, childcare, you know, these things are often wholly, sometimes partially privatized, you know, even public universities um, have pretty high tuition bills. So my friend in Norway, for example, after she had her first child, she was visited by a nurse or, or a midwife, I, I believe it's every week to ensure that, um, you know, her health and the baby's health were, were okay. And and I remember her telling me that she had always been a little bit resentful that she had to pay like 40% taxes. I think it was around that. Um, but now that she'd experienced the quality of care um, at what she felt was a very vulnerable and important critical time in her life, 
She was really proud that she lived in a country where every woman, you know, regardless of their socioeconomic status, was was entitled to this kind of health care after they gave birth. You know, I started to feel that way once New York City introduced universal pre-K. I felt really proud to live in a city that provides a service that I, I think is is really valuable and that and that people need. And I was happy to support it with my, my tax dollars. That's on a kind of larger macro level. You know, I think on the personal level, some of this individualism, you, know, you can see it. I think I think people feel afraid to ask each other for help. And because we've made that sort of asking, kind of framed it as someone is being weak or vulnerable or they're somehow incapable of looking after themselves or, or their dependents, um, you know, or, or people don't want to do it because they see that other people around them are also really stressed or harried or maybe they're working two jobs or they're, they're somehow otherwise starved for time. And this general feeling of scarcity and precarity makes it really hard for people to look outside their nuclear family for help. But, you know, this became clear that this was, was kind of impossible to, to raise a family in isolation during COVID. So you saw parents at, at their wit's end. And I hope that was the beginning of a reckoning and um, a recognition that there, there's a better better way to do things. Yeah. And let's, let's hope some of those trends uh, continue in some way. You know, when you think about your book, and this will be your first one, but when you think about the impact you hope your book will have on readers, especially with regard to this broader conversation around childcare and reproductive health, what do you hope your book will do in terms of informing readers about these issues, particularly in this moment when the conversation has really shifted, right? And like you said, during COVID, the need for more support to raise families is becoming more clear. I'm curious about what you hope your readers will gain from reading your book. I think first and foremost, I hope that they get a better grasp of the situation around them and understand the stress and the uncertainty and the precarity and the insecurity that they're feeling um, is not their fault. And it's a function of these, these bigger forces that, that um, I hope to sort of give some explanation and analysis uh, data and history um, for so that that becomes intellectually graspable to them. But, you know, I think I, I hope it kind of works on a couple of different levels. I mean, one is, you know, a reader might ask themselves, what would make, if you're having it had a kid or if you're deciding to have another, you know, what would make this decision easier? If you are a parent, what would have made this experience easier, more secure, more joyful? For you, you know, and that's not something like a, a diaper changing robot, which maybe, you know, someday someone will invent, but, you know, something like student loan forgiveness. Is it, you know, feeling like you're more secure in your job? Is it more affordable housing? Is it um, affordable child care? You know, I mean, something like this tax credit, you know, $300 a month tax credit, it's not going to solve these huge issues like affordable housing um, or the lack of comprehensive and affordable health insurance for people. But, you know, it's at least a recognition that for a lot of people, given how you know, horrifically unequal our country is, the struggle to parent in a way that feels comfortable and happy and secure, um, you know, for a lot of people, it comes down to finances. But I think asking that question and understanding what would help gives people sort of a path forward of like, okay, maybe this is a policy area I care about, and maybe I'll be active on it, I'll learn more about it you know, I'll work with other people to make change around it. 
I think on a deeper level, you know, a lot of this comes down to uncertainty. Like we we live in a moment where, you know, there's there's very little job security. Um, the climate is changing all the time. And I think that creates an environment, you know, a kind of a psychological state that's really unconducive to taking on a, a very massive, intense, long-term undertaking, which is, you know, introducing a, a very tiny person into your life and taking care of them um, over um, several decades, you know, and so anything we can do to address that, you know, those are sort of deeper questions about like what kind of society we want to live in and to what extent do we recognize our interdependence on one another? Do we care about creating a more stable and secure and um, less unfair kind of world for other people? Um, you know, I mean, there's some examples that I think are kind of shocking, like in China, you know, the government just banned for-profit tutoring because the competition and the pressure to succeed academically is so intense that they think that it's become a bird, it's a pressure that's weighing on their birth rate. So they're hoping to increase the birth rate by banning for-profit tutoring in core academic subjects so that middle-class families who felt that they had to pay for these lessons or else their kids couldn't compete could, you know, could cross off one more um, sort of line item in their budget of sort of mandatory child raising expenses. You know, or in, in the U.S., I mean, there's there's simply no guaranteed paid leave um, so that from the, the time a child is born until they enroll in pre-K or kindergarten, you're, you're, you're on your own, more or less, um, unless you have access to paid leave through your employer. So, you know, these, these questions of sort of what expectations do we have what do we fear? You know, which fears are, are irrational? Which ones are really um, well-founded and need addressing? And how do we want to address that? Um, you know, I think one, one other thing I want to point to is this whole history of, um, you know, non-biological and non-nuclear kinship networks and networks of care and support um, that formed among people whose biological families either were not legally recognized or whose you know, people whose families rejected them or, um, you know, were, were sites of abuse rather than care or families that were torn apart in the name of, of, of profit, you know, as, as slaveholders did to enslave people. There was a lot of sort of care and love and support produced, you know, outside of the nuclear family. Um, and I recently heard the term care austerity, courtesy of the scholar Sophie Lewis, um, and it really resonated with me. You know, why is why is care something that we ration and dole out to just to select few people in our lives? Why can't it be more abundant? And why can't it take more forms? You know, whether that's you 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 um, manifest that care through paying your taxes um, rather than avoiding them, as so many billionaires do. Um, you know, or you know, it, it comes out through family policy um, that we vote for, or, you know, just in how we organize our lives, our relationships, our cities. Um, you know, I think that's one thing of the sort of brighter, more positive um, direction I, I hope I can point uh, readers to. So as you embark on your fellowship project this year, where do you hope to be a year from now with it? Oh, dear. Well, it's, uh, it's due, I think, in January. So I, in a year, I hope we have 
finished the edits. I hope I will have had a, a chance to have visited South Korea at that point. Because um, I'm not sure I'll have a, a chance to go before the first draft of the manuscript is due just based on the travel restrictions. And I hope I may be on the way to trying to become a parent myself, although that's really not what the village did it for. But um, but that's that's kind of part of this uh, this whole undertaking, this whole experience is uh, it's forced a lot of personal reflection and, and I think it's funny. So we're thrilled to support you this year and to see your project take shape. Thank you for your time today, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org slash fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.